Heavenly Father, uh, we pray to you now and we pray that we need you to come and we need you to teach us by your Holy Spirit. And God, uh, we come this morning um, in full awareness of a lot of the things that are going on in our world, uh, especially what just unfolded in Boulder where 10 victims of a work of evil and sin and really a work of murder um, just weigh heavy on our hearts. And God, we pray that for those families that lost loved ones, that you would be present to them in their grief and in their anger. We pray the same thing for the victims of families in Atlanta just a couple of weeks ago. And God, I confess that I am uh, often callous to these things now. Um, I'm often really just settled in the reality that this seems normal and that these works of evil and hatred are uh, really just daily life now. God, I realize that that's sin in me and that I would ask that you would change that in me and that you would change that in our hearts as well. And God, we do. We look forward to a day when you will defeat evil and murder and death and violence and hatred and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more crying and no more pain. And God, uh, we pray even this morning now that you would be with us, that you would draw near to us. And we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us now, God, so that we could understand your word better and gain great assurance in your word, despite the craziness of life around us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. And if you were with us last week, we unpacked Romans 7, which is really, uh, really a, a phenomenal understanding of the experience of Paul in being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus. And what we used, uh, we used a term for this. We said that this experience that Paul had was an experience of what we called being spiritual. Being spiritual. And spirituality is actually pretty popular today, right? You hear people often say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or, you know, I love spiritual things. I love spiritual connection with God. But, you know, the institution of the church or religion in general, it's just not for me. And what do people usually mean when they say that they're spiritual? You know, they, they usually mean something like this, that I have a deep inner peace, calm, tranquility. There's this groundedness that I have, right? That's usually what people mean when they talk about being spiritual. And to be sure, when Paul's unpacking his understanding of being spiritual, that is part of it. Paul, in fact, today is going to say, to set the mind on the things of the spirit is life and peace. So there is a measure of peace that comes with being a spiritual person. But if you were with us last week, you saw that that really is only half the equation because alongside that peace can often comes deep, intense spiritual turmoil. Paul, in fact, put it this way. This is Romans 7.15. You'll remember from last week, he said, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on to say, I delight in the law of God. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's what Paul's describing here is this intense spiritual conflict between a new self that's been spiritually awakened in Jesus and an old self an old nature that continues to hang around and vie for our affections and vie for our obedience. That's what Paul's describing here. John Stott called it, quote, the double reality of a spiritual person. Double reality. 
This double reality of, on the one hand, a desire to follow God. We want that, don't we? We want to change. We want to do good. We want to please God. But then on the other hand, there's this love for sin. And a love for sin is not too strong a word. It's a love for sin. We love to do the very thing that we hate. And Paul described this double reality as a war. A war. So to be spiritual, according to Paul, means life and peace and intense spiritual warfare with our flesh, with sin. Now I say all that, Romans 7, because that is the reason for Romans chapter 8. Paul gives us Romans chapter 8 as an assurance for what's going on in Romans 7 is not the end of the story as well. He gives us this deep assurance that if you are in Jesus, if you are in fact spiritual this morning, if that's you, if you have spiritual life in you, even though there's a double reality going on in your heart, you can have assurance that God has delivered you from sin and that God will never leave you because of your sin. That's his assurance this morning. And now what do I mean by assurance, right? Because that can sound like a Christian term. Well, it means simply this. It means security. And you can put it this way, right? I never worry. I never worry about my passport and my birth certificate because they are in a secure lockbox in my house that's fireproof. And it's also made of like this industrial steel. So it doesn't matter if a hurricane comes through. It doesn't matter if a tornado comes through or if a fire overtakes my house. I am certain and I never worry that I will have my passport so I can travel anywhere I want, right? You keep your important documents in that safe steel lockbox. And Paul wants to say, hey, for you who are spiritual, you can have this security, this assurance of knowing no matter what happens, no matter what the war of sin raging inside you brings about, you can have assurance of two things. And he wants to assure you of two things this morning. First, and we're going to see this in verses 1 through 4. Paul says, be assured, be assured, you are free from the penalty of sin. Completely free from the penalty of sin. And then secondly, be assured, verses 5 through 11, you're also filled with the Spirit of God. You're filled with the Spirit of God. So with that, let's read Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of God through the Apostle Paul for your assurance this morning. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of God. So Paul, again, wants to give you an assurance this morning. And his first assurance is in verses 1 through 2 where he says that you are free from the penalty of sin. And that's actually what he means when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. In other words, what Paul is saying is for those who have faith in Jesus, then they have been set free from the law and its condemning power. They've been set free from the law and its condemning power, And we've explained this a number of times through our trek through Romans, that when Paul's speaking of the law here, what he's talking about is the law of God given by God through Moses to Israel in the Old Testament, what's best summarized in the Ten Commandments. Dwayne, in fact, in our concurrent series that we're going on here, he's actually going through the Ten Commandments as I'm preaching through Romans. And we've seen, right, that this law functions just like any other law. The Ten Commandments function just like any, any other law in that when somebody breaks the law of God, there's a penalty, there's a consequence for their breaking of that law because that's how all laws works. All law works. Penalty follows disobedience, right? And this starts at an early age. So for instance, I have uh, two two-year-olds, right? And they're not even two-year-olds yet. But we want to instill them early in their life that penalties follow disobedience. So just yesterday, we got this water fountain, right? And we told our girls, hey, don't put your hands in the water fountain. We don't want them sticking their hands in the water fountain. And of course, when they do, what do we do? We follow it up with a penalty. We give them a light smack on the hand, right? To tell them, do not put your hands in the water fountain. It's holy water, by the way. That's why we don't want them putting their hands in it, you know? So... The point is this, right? Penalties follow disobedience. And this happens with all other kinds of laws, right? Tax laws, civil laws, criminal laws, traffic laws. When I was in high school, I was 17, just got my license. I went up to Frederick, which is up north. And like I do, like all 17-year-olds do, I took my brother's Tahoe and I went off-roading with it, blew a stop sign, and then all of a sudden I look back and a, a cop's pulling me over. And I got a 22-point ticket because I went off-roading. I was speeding. I didn't stop at a stop sign. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. I didn't have insurance because I wasn't on my brother's insurance. And I had a friend in the car who wasn't supposed to be there. Needless to say, they haven't invited me back to Frederick. But they wanted to tell me, right, hey, penalties follow disobedience. That's how the law works. And if you read the Old Testament, when it comes to the law of God... This is the experience of Israel, Judah, God's people, their experience with the Old Testament, that they always found themselves under God's condemnation and under the penalty for their disobedience to sin, even though they had God's law, right? That's what distinguished them from the nations around them. They had God's law, the nations didn't, but they still found themselves committing the very same sins that the people around them committed, so, for instance, nobody illustrates this better than Amos. Amos was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was sent to Judah and Israel to give them this message that disobedience leads to the penalty for sin. 
And he starts off his prophecy and he starts prophesying against all the other nations around them. Prophecies against Samaria and Gaza and Tyre and Edom. And God's people are like, yeah, yeah, go get them. They're so debauched. They're so depraved. They break God's law. And then Amos comes and he says this, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, oops, God's people now, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walk. So I will send fire upon Judah, and I shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So you see, even though Judah had God's law, they were unable to keep it. They found themselves rejecting God's law. They didn't keep his statutes. They allowed lies to lead them astray. And God says he will not revoke the punishment. They will receive the penalty. And Amos continues. Now he addresses Israel. And he says to Israel, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for pairs of sandals. In other words, they're engaged in bribery and injustice. A judge takes a bribe on the side They're working out back alley deals. Then verse 7, those who trample on the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. They don't care for those who are are poor, those who are in need. They commit atrocious things against the marginalized and the oppressed. Then verse 7, again, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. In other words, they commit sexual sins horrible sexual sins that God says profane his name. They mix his holy name with the pollution of the nations around them and their sexual practices. And then verse 8, he says, here's the ultimate thing they do. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. They commit idolatry. They practice the sin of worshiping not the true God, but the God of all the nations around them. So see, even though Israel had God's law and they were distinct from the nations around them, they nonetheless fell into the same sins and they fell under the same condemnation as the nations around them. And now this is deeply uncomfortable because we go back to our text, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says there's no condemnation. Well, the condemnation that Paul's talking there is not just temporal, this worldly condemnation and punishment. He's talking about eternal punishment. He's talking about an eternal condemnation, what the Bible calls hell. Hell, which is God's final and ultimate penalty against sin. And Paul talks about this in other places. This is 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. He talks about a day when God will come and judge. And he says, this will happen to those who are not in Christ, who are not in Jesus. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' earliest followers, he actually gets a vision of what this is going to look like. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. This is Jesus, sitting on this great white throne. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And he says, books were opened. These are books of judgment and books in the book of life. He said, these books were opened. 
And he says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. He's talking about a resurrection at the end of time where all people who have died will stand before God's judgment. The dead will be brought back to life. And then death and Hades, he said, were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus himself, Matthew 25, verse 31, is one of the last speeches Jesus ever gave to his disciples, his followers. He said, when the Son of Man, that's him, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, the same throne that's referenced in Revelation chapter 20. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So see, the penalty for disobedience to God's law, just like any penalty, right? A penalty for my daughter, a smack on the wrist, garnished wages for evading tax laws, ID point deductions for violation of traffic laws, All of these things carry a penalty, and Paul, John, and Jesus himself say the penalty for disobedience to God's law is eternal condemnation, eternal punishment. And now I realize, right, when I'm talking about hell, I'm talking about a very uncomfortable, a very unpopular topic, and it leads to a lot of questions. And I wrestle with these questions too, and I have to say that a lot of these questions, I sometimes just have to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why there is such a thing as an eternal hell. And many wonder, okay, I get that there's penalties for law-breaking. I get that condemnation has to follow disobedience, but an eternity of condemnation for one finite life? That's the question I struggle with the most. And again, I don't necessarily know how that all works out because it seems disproportionate and unfair. But I'd have you think of this. Maybe this will help. I just want this to open the door to you to thinking about this idea of eternal condemnation. Right? I want you to think, you take a rock, okay? And you go up to another rock, and you break that rock, nothing happens. Now, if you take that same rock and you go and scratch a child's bicycle, the parents will come out and they'll start yelling at you. They'll say, what are you doing to my child's huffy? Now, take that same rock, same rock, and you go and scratch their Audi in their driveway, now you got the police called on you, don't you? Now, take that same rock and chuck it through the window of their house. Now the police are definitely called. And you might even get a fine. You might get a ticket. You might even have to do community service. Take that same rock and throw it through the White House. Now you're definitely going to jail. But now, take that rock and throw it at the president. Some of you would cheer. I joke. (laughs) No, but you throw it at the president, you will definitely spend life in prison. And the point is just simply this. The more valuable and precious the one offended, the more severe the penalty. 
right? And think God, who is infinite and eternal, a violation, a penalty for breaking his law carries infinite and eternal condemnation. And the thing is, is it's not just one sin. It's not just one infraction, one breaking of a law with God, right? It's constant. We constantly do this as if it's second nature to us because it is. And I think of my own life, right? It's as if I'm living in a glass house, chucking rocks left and right, right? Whether it's yelling at my children, lusting at that woman, passively aggressive with my wife, dishonoring my parents, being filled with envy over that person's success, this wholesale belief that I am the most important person in the universe, not God, and a wholesale belief that my convenience, my happiness, my life, and my priorities should be the center of everyone else's existence as well. Just take this as an example, right? Last Sunday, I went into Dunkin' Donuts, and I tell them, hey, I need it ready at 6 a.m. because I pick it up before church, and it's got to be ready by 6 a.m., and I give them my payment. I'm, I'm assured, right, it's going to be ready at 6 a.m. Well, I walk in at 6.15, and guess what? The donuts aren't ready. And you know what was going on in my heart? I had rocks and I was throwing them at every single one of those employees, right? Because my time, my time had been infringed upon. How dare Dunkin' Donuts, America runs on Dunkin'. <laughs> and how dare Dunkin' not have my donuts ready at 6.15? How am I supposed to run? How am I supposed to run? And now the point is this. I deserve the eternal condemnation of God. I do. I deserve the eternal condemnation of God in hell. I deserve the penalty for my sins because I've offended the infinite and eternal God of the universe. And if you do not understand that, then the words of Romans 8.1 will never be assuring to you. They will just be religious language on a page. Because when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, the condemnation that he's referring to is the punishment of God for sin. And he's saying, if you are in Jesus, then that condemnation can never touch you, ever. And grammar matters here, right? He's not saying that you're not condemned. As if, okay, I'm not condemned now, but then if I commit sin in the future, I might fall back under that condemnation. No, he says, there's no condemnation. Meaning, condemnation is completely outside of the reach of you because you've been set free from the penalty of the law. That penalty for breaking the law has been completely done away with. And the reason Paul can say this, by the way, is in verse 3. He says it's because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that that's what the law does in us. See, the law, which is good, mixed with sinners like me, who are bad, leads to nothing other than condemnation. That's why Paul calls it the law of sin and death in verse 2. Not because the law is bad, but because when I try to keep it, that's the only thing that results, sin and death over and over and over again. It's like fire and oxygen, right? Oxygen's good, fire's bad. Put them together, destruction. God's law is good, I am bad. Put them together, destruction, condemnation, sin, and death. And Paul says, 
you can know that there's no condemnation. You can know that the eternal punishment for your sins can never touch you because Jesus was condemned in our place. That's why Paul continues. He says, God's done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. See, God himself, God the Father, sent his son to bear the eternal condemnation, to be a sin offering for the forgiveness of sins for all those who would trust in him. He came and condemned sin in the flesh. See, what Paul is saying here is that God himself took on human flesh and instead of condemning sin in us, which we all deserve, God the Father condemned sin in Jesus. Therefore, we are not condemned because God condemned Jesus on the cross. And why did he do it all? Well, verse 4, he says the reason that he did it all is that in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. You might have ever asked the question, I know I've asked this question, why can't God just forgive? Why can't God just forgive us? Why does he have to send his son? Why does he have to do that in order to forgive us for sins? Well, he tells us here, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be satisfied. See, Paul says here that God's righteous requirements of the law have to be fulfilled. God righteously requires that all law-breaking be punished. All law-breaking from the beginning of the world till the end of time. All must be punished. And in Jesus, God did not set aside his justice. He didn't set aside the righteous requirements of the law. No, on the cross, God turned his justice on himself and poured his justice out on his own son whom he sent to stand in our place. And we are not condemned now because God condemned Jesus on the cross. So you can have this assurance this morning. If you, in fact, are in Christ, there is no condemnation. It is beyond the reach of you. It is beyond the reach of you. That's not the only assurance Paul has. So be assured of that. You are forgiven. But Paul even adds on to this. He says, not only are you forgiven, free from the condemnation of the law, free from the penalty of sin, but he says you can be assured and have this security in knowing as well that God's spirit has filled you. Be assured you are filled with God's spirit. And maybe you notice this. If you look again down at your text, verses 5 through 11, Paul says this word spirit over and over and over again. In fact, he says spirit nine times in six verses between verses 5 and 11. And that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to the third person of the Trinity living inside a person. The Spirit is God himself. And so what does being filled with the Spirit of God look like? What does that actually entail? And it's not what we would think. Because if you actually look across Christian culture, you would think, oh, well, that's huge acts of miracles, right? We're able to do these amazing acts of miracles, or maybe we're able to speak in different languages, all of which do happen in the Bible. But Paul says, and where he starts is with the mind. Did you notice that? Paul says that the indelible mark of a person who follows Jesus now has a change in their mind. Verse 5, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
So notice, first, Paul begins here with what being filled with the Spirit is not. He starts with a contrast. A contrast that he says being filled with the Spirit is a mind not set on the flesh. And now don't be misled here. A mind set on the flesh or the flesh in the Bible is, does not mean our bodies, right? God doesn't have a problem with skin. In fact, he created it. And flesh is what Jesus himself took on. God loves bodies. No, what he's talking about when he's talking about flesh here is he's talking about our sinful nature. Our sinful nature, meaning the disposition that we are all born with into this world to turn away from God and turn inward on ourselves. To look away from God and to look at ourselves. Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor. I think he put it well. He said, if Jesus' objective is for us to love God and love our neighbors, then to be in the flesh is to love yourself so much more than you love neighbor or God. That's what it means to set your mind on the things of the flesh. And I can't stress this enough. I can't stress this enough. This looks normal. This looks so normal. In fact, Paul would say that to live in the flesh is our natural disposition. It's our default mode. Think of it this way, right? You have an iPhone and it comes with default settings that you never use, by the way. Who's ever used GarageBand? Exactly. Nobody. Okay, three people. All right. It has these default settings, right, that you have to undo. Paul says to be in the flesh is your default setting, and because of that, it looks natural. So it doesn't look sinister. It doesn't look evil, right? We usually think, okay, to be in the flesh looks kind of like uh, Montgomery Burns from The Simpsons, right? This greedy capitalist that's always like in the back alley somewhere looking to cut throats and step on necks. That's not what Paul says it looks like. No, it looks completely normal. It looks like our everyday natural life because it is natural for us. And let me give you some examples of what this sounds like. It sounds like this. It sounds like me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. How have I been treated so unjustly by my family? Why do they treat me like they treat my sister or my brother? It seems so unfair. How could they do that to me? Don't they love me? Or it frets on how my rights are being infringed, right? They're my God-given rights after all. How can my rights possibly be infringed? Or it concerns over my contribution and my work not being recognized. Don't they know how hard I worked? That was my idea. It's a mind set on financial security and my career advancement and my freedoms. Again, all of which are good. But when they're prioritized over God and neighbor... They become something that ultimately destroys us. In fact, look at how Paul describes the work of the flesh. This is Galatians chapter 5. Notice how much I is in the work of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, right? My sexual appetites being first and foremost having to be satisfied. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, my idea of God taking the place of the real God, my idea of God. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, jealousy, right? I deserve what that person has. I deserve that. How could they have it? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, join my team. Join my team against that person. Envy, 
drunkenness. Who, who, who are you to place limitations on what I can and cannot eat and what I can and cannot drink? Orgies, right? Who are you to set a limit on who I can and who I cannot sleep with, right? And things like these. That's the work of the flesh. Each of these, right, is to love myself so much more than I love God and my neighbor. And again, I can't stress this enough. This comes naturally to us. This is our natural disposition. And Paul says it leads to death. Verse 6. Romans chapter 5, or Romans chapter 8, verse 6. He says, for a mind set on the flesh is death. It's death. And we know that's true. And that's what makes it so hard to change. A mind set on the flesh is death. We know when my mind is set and prioritized on me and not God, it always leads to my destruction. It always does. Right? Think about it. When my mind is set on financial security, okay, I think, okay, I need to build up a three-month reserve of income because that's just the wise thing to do. Dave Ramsey tells you to do that. And then once I get that three months, you know what I want? I want six months. And then once I get six months, I'm like, ooh, I could get it. If I could get a year under my belt, then nothing could touch me. I could be financially secure. And then the next thing you know, I'm logging on to Schwab.com every single day. I'm calling my, you know, financial advisor, Bernard, like, how we doing, Bernard? And isn't it ironic that as I focus so exclusively on my financial security, I become so deeply financially insecure? Because to set the mind on the flesh is death. Or take about when my mind is set on my comfort and my ease, my status. It just so happens to be the case that I never have enough. I'm never comfortable enough. I'm never secure. So when I get a 55-inch screen TV, it's never as good as the 72-inch screen TV that my neighbor has. Or when I have this awesome Honda Odyssey, which I do, right? It's like this low to the ground, like my kids can just step up into it. (laughs) Then my brother gets a Tahoe. And I'm thinking, I need a Tahoe. And the the ironic thing is, or the terrible thing is, I don't even want a Tahoe. It's a monstrosity. It wouldn't even fit in my garage. Because nobody could have fathomed in 1971 when when somebody built my house that an 18-foot car would fit in here. (laughs) But it's always the case. When I prioritize my comfort and my status, I never feel comfortable. I always am more dejected. And my mindset on the flesh is death. And Paul even takes this one step further. Paul says, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, yes, I know you have to turn to it too. He says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So even though it seems so normal and it seems so natural, Paul says a mind set on the flesh, it's hostile to God because it's contrasted with and in opposition to a mind set on the flesh. But here's his assurance. And here's the security. Right? He says, verse 9, he says that, You, however, you, whoever, those of you who have faith in Jesus, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You, however, are not in the flesh. And this can be unsettling at times, right? Because 
When we see, even though we have faith in Jesus, our mind is constantly drawn to the things of the flesh. It can be unsettling. These things of the flesh, despite our faith in Jesus, often attract our intention. But what Paul says here is that is not what is most true of you. That is not what is defining about you if you have faith in Jesus. You actually belong to Jesus. You are his. And his spirit fills you. But you say, well, I don't think I'll ever defeat the flesh. I don't ever think I can you know, outgrow this spiritual struggle. I don't think I can win. I can't help myself. And you're right. You can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. Because a person's behavior and their affections are not determined by your own efforts. No, a person's desires, their affections, and their actions are determined by the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside a person because you can't help yourself. Only God can defeat sin in your life. Only God can defeat the power of sin and death and condemnation. And that's what Paul actually roots this assurance in. Because you might say, well, okay, I'm filled with the Spirit. I get kind of what that could look like. But how do I know I have the Spirit within me? And how do I know this Holy Spirit inside of me will actually lead to my flourishing, will lead to my good, will lead to eternal life? Well, Paul says in verse 11, you can know because this If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul reasons this way. He says, think of it this way. If the spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, signifying Jesus' defeat of the power of sin and death, If that same spirit lives inside of you, then doesn't that mean that the power of sin and death will also be defeated in you? Not only when you're resurrected again to inherit eternal life, but it'll also be defeated in you because the spirit defeats the power of sin and death inside a person. That's how Paul reasons. And that's why this is such assuring news. Because it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. My assurance is not about my right beliefs or my radical obedience or my fully selling out to Jesus or in my sense of spiritual empowerment or how spiritual I feel on a given day. That's not what I ground my assurance in. That can never be secure because to be honest, my beliefs are subject to change. My radical obedience is sometimes not so radical. And my sense of spiritual empowerment is often very weak and feels very dispowering. I cannot help myself. But my assurance and your assurance, your security is found outside of yourself exclusively in Jesus, in what he has accomplished and what he has done in his death to die to the penalty of sin and his resurrection, which assures you that the power of sin is broken in your life. I'll close this with this reference to Henry Skugel. Henry Skugel was a young man. He actually died at the age of 28, but before he died, he wanted to write a letter to one of his friends just about a, a real encouragement of what it looked like to truly follow Jesus. And Skugel, who died at 28, he set out to write this letter, and 
incidentally, has actually never been out of print since he wrote it and had it published. So you can still get it. It's still in print today. It's entitled, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And Skugel wrote this. This is to his friend, and this is what Paul is essentially writing to us. He said, if G- he said, true Christianity consists not in the trappings of religion, in the understanding of orthodox belief or in moral performances, nor in ecstatic devotion. As important as those things are, he said, true Christianity, true assurance is not found in those things. Rather, true Christianity is found in the union of the soul with God and Christ. It is found with Christ within us. Christ within us. The Spirit of God living inside of her sin. Because when Christ is in you, you have the assurance that you no longer can look at yourself. You look outside of yourself to Jesus, who in his crucifixion was condemned in your place. And in his resurrection assures you that sin and death is defeated. Even though it might not look like it now, it is defeated because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to be assured. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word for us. Your word is like bread to our souls and we need it regularly, God. We need to be reminded of these truths. God, I pray that through this word, you would please help us have eyes not to look to ourselves for assurance, God, because there is much in us to condemn But would you help us have eyes to see outside of ourselves to Christ, your son, Jesus who came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin was condemned in our place to defeat the penalty of sin. And would you also give us eyes to see his resurrection, his resurrection which assures us that we will one day not only be removed from the presence of sin completely, but we have this great assurance now because of his resurrection that the power of sin is defeated in us. And God, help us sing now that there is no condemnation that we dread because we know Jesus and his righteousness is ours. We pray this all in his name. Amen.